Hi guys, good afternoon. It, it really is a, it's a bit of a mind bend to be speaking in the afternoon. I mean, uh, and a real privilege. It meant we could hang with the family this morning here in Wokingham, which is a real pleasure. Thanks so much for having us and to be with you guys this afternoon. Um, as, uh, as Owen says, we from a distance there in Cheltenham have watched with great interest how you guys have taken big steps of faith, and we've heard great stories and exciting developments here at Foundation Church, and to be here today with you is a real joy for Lorette and I, my wife, and Joshua and Megan, um, our two kids. Thank you for having us, and uh, it is, as Owen says, such a joy to be part of the same family of churches. You know, we had lunch with, with Dave and Anna, and we, you don't even need to have the small talk. You can just get into it because you, we've got the same heart. It's so wonderful. So, you know you've got brothers and sisters over there who love you, and we know you guys love us, and, uh, and together we're going to do great things for God, and we're so excited for that. Well, the, uh, the elders have asked me uh, to speak about giving this afternoon. And before you think, man, what agenda have these guys got for me? Um, let, let me just bring a little bit of context, okay? At God First, we're, we're on the back of uh, an incredibly exciting process of purchasing our first building that is ours. It's going to be just a midweek and office space. Uh, we can't do Sundays in it quite yet. Uh, there's nothing we can, there's no kids' opportunities. But this building came on the market um, right at the back of the summer holidays. We had two weeks to speak to the church and get the pledges in that were required to get it across the line and to be able to put in an offer. In those two weeks, God first has pledged, and I give you this number, not to intimidate you or in any way scare you, but to encourage you. We were we pledged 162,000 pounds. Now, we are not that much bigger than Foundation Church, okay? It is a... And with uh, the gift aid and the, the 52,000 that we had in the bank, this was exactly the 270,000 that we needed for the deposit. I mean, God was so good, so faithful. And it's with this kind of context and the journey and just the, the sort of faith that's bubbling in us as a church and in, I suppose in me as well, that the elders have asked me to speak about giving. And I've gone with the grace of giving this afternoon. Also at God First, we've recently finished a series through the book of Acts. And um, I was freshly struck by, towards the end of the book, there's a, a significant um, portion of the New Testament that kind of, or letters of Paul that sort of correlates with the story of Paul doing a financial collection for the church in Jerusalem that was suffering. And Paul, um, as you can probably see on the map behind me, he, just one back, there it is, it was on his third mission journey that Paul kind of gathered the collection. He goes up through Asia Minor, which is Turkey today. Uh, he goes up through Macedonia, down through Greece, and then back. And in all of these churches, he's encouraging them to take up a collection for the church in Jerusalem. Now, honestly, just between you and me, that never struck me as important 
at all until like three months ago. Like this is a really, so if, if this is news to you, welcome to the party, okay? And in 42 AD, there was a prophet named Agabus. And Agabus prophesied that there would be a major famine in the area of Judea. And the Apostle Paul, I'm sure like many of his fellow uh, church leaders, took God at His word. You know, when God speaks, we want to uh, take steps in line with that. And he encouraged the followers of Jesus in the many new churches, you know, in Asia, Macedonia, Greece, to start taking in a collection, an offering for the church in Jerusalem to aid them during this time of crisis. And in around 49 AD, which is like seven years after the prophetic word, the historians say the famine begins. It really hits hard. And although there surely were were many moments of support throughout these years, um, it's really only during uh, this third mission journey in around AD 59 that Paul comes back. So it's 10 years after the the famine started, um, and it must have been in full swing at this point, hard times. And he's able to bring this gathered offering from all these churches that have been planted freshly to come and bring support and encouragement to the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Now, although much, if not most, of what the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament about uh, giving and generosity is written into this context, which a little bit for me was like, again, I just hadn't seen that in a long time. he writes about this giving and generosity into this, this famine-stricken Jerusalem church context. And, you know, we often, you'll see as we read these scriptures, they're verses that we read and we think, yeah, this is all about giving and being generous, but you don't understand why, what's been the heart behind this, and what's Paul's purpose in encouraging in this way. So, I'm going to be drawing mainly from uh, 2 Corinthians 8, which is, again, written by the Apostle Paul, the book of Corinthians, to the church in Corinth, which is kind of in the south there of Greece. And um, 8 and 9, we're going to just take two passages. And I really hope, like me, that you'll not only find this interesting to kind of reread these two well-known passages through the lens of supporting the struggling church in Jerusalem, but also because allow it to put a growing sense of faith and joy in the good news of Jesus, which truly is the foundation of giving. So today is more about Jesus and less about giving, but man, those two things just go hand in hand. So let's read together our first passage from 2 Corinthians 8. Please, it will be behind me. There it is. We're in verse 1. I want you to know, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints." And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this 
this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. Our Lord, speak to us. We love Your Word. We love Your presence by Your Spirit. We love, we love this, the brotherhood, the sisterhood of believers who gather to be encouraged, and to encourage one another. God, allow us to know Your grace this afternoon, which puts fire in our bellies, puts steel in our backbones, allows us to stand tall in faith because of what Jesus has done on our behalf and for us. Allow us to know You and love You afresh today. Amen. Amen. So, giving is a means of grace to us. Giving is both a means of grace to us and a means of grace through us. And let's just start there on that sort of point. You know, when I say giving is a means of grace, I mean that there are so many ways in which God expresses the undeserved favor, His love and grace toward us. When you think sunshine, when you think, oh, rain for the crops, when you think good harvests, when you think finances, think job promotions, think family, think friends and stable government, whether you agree with it or not, what a blessing. Technology, we were packing the dishwasher this morning, Darren and I, and we're like, wow, yeah, I want, that is awesome. <laughs> that is the grace of God. It's when God is good to us, and you know it, and you experience it, and you think, man, this is the way life should be. Yeah. This is God's means of grace to us. And God uses all of these things and many more to bring a fullness and a sense of His love and His goodness and His kindness toward us. Some of these things we would call common grace. They, they are things that God gives to all people, of all faith, of all languages and cultures and nations, regardless of where they are and what they believe, because He just loves all of us. You think, man, rain, yeah. It's a grace of God upon all. Sunshine, thank you. Technology, wow, thank you, God. And some of these things are a specific means of grace towards His people, towards the people that are His through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus' life, His death on a cross, His burial, His resurrection, His ascension into glory, allow His followers certain means of grace that are uniquely available to those who participate with Jesus in His good news, in His gospel. That's what the gospel means, good news, as we participate in His story. Giving in its fullest sense, 
the way God thinks of it, and Paul would say we should think of it, is one of those unique means of grace for those who are followers of Jesus. Anyone can give, right? Anyone can give. Anyone can receive. But followers of Jesus uniquely have experienced first and foremost the ultimate giving of God toward us. And we believe that that Jesus Christ, He had lived eternally in union and fellowship with the Father, Son, and Spirit before the world even existed. Jesus had everything. He needed nothing from nobody. Think about it. If you created the entire universe and everything in it, there is nothing in the created world that you need. And Paul says in our passage, he was rich. He was rich in glory, rich in unity, rich in power, rich in stature and honor. He was rich. And although he was rich in all things and needed nothing, Jesus chose to humble himself, to lay down much of his riches and his power and his glory to take on human form so that he might relate to us, that he might be able to represent ultimately his creation, his people, his beloved ones. And he was born poor. You know, he was born into a poor family, into a very poor village, into a poor, subjugated nation. There's nothing rich about the way that he entered the world. He came poor. But why would Jesus do that? Why would he, who had it all, and didn't need anything from anybody, especially humanity, which is part of His creation, why would He choose to lay that down? Because of the grace of giving from the Lord Jesus toward us, it's it's one of the signs that, that He loves us. He lays down His riches so that through His becoming poor, like us, we might become rich like Him. So if I asked you, where does your riches lie? You might go, yeah, HSBC, duh, obviously. Or, man, it's in my family, it's in my children. Maybe it's in my life experiences or the cool job that I have. That's where my riches lie. That's where my future riches lie And to be honest, I would agree with many of those sentiments. Those are really lovely and good things. But some of us would even say, you know, I haven't got any of those things right now. I must be poor. But if we were really honest with ourselves, we know, even in times where we've had those things, and it's been great, actually, we know that that's not where true riches lie is it? How can we say that? Why, why would I say that? Well, all of us at some time or another has had some or all of those things. And as nice as they are, they didn't bring us any lasting sense of joy and peace. It was so lovely to, to hear from um, David saying the same sentiment, no lasting sense of joy and peace in these things. If anything, 
we can see to, to some extent that um, even though these are good things, they take hold of us in a way that is really unhealthy. We often speak of that they enslave us. And like a, a snake devouring its own tail, there, there can be times where we feel the utter purposelessness of it all. But we're powerless to change anything about it because this is the way it is. This is the rat race. This is the cycle we're on. And the Apostle Paul would say that true riches and poverty are only found in relation to the things that are eternal. And Christians believe that because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, that we have proof that we too will rise to eternal life. And when we close our eyes in this life, this momentary life, we will open them again in the eternal next life, in the new heavens and the new earth with Jesus. And money and family and jobs and houses, none of that passes through into eternity with us. And if you're in Christ, which is one of the Apostle Paul's favorite phrases and teachings, he says, nothing is created, uh, sorry, nothing in this created world will, will cross from this life through death into eternity. Only the imperishable, the soul of the man and the woman, the humanity that God has made, only the imperishable will be able to make that transition. God's love in the person of Jesus is the only thing that truly has eternal value for us. And when Jesus, who, who not only taught, you know, we know Him as a great moral teacher, don't we? We all celebrate those things absolutely true of Him. But He also not just taught, but lived the highest standard of moral perfect life according to the highest standard of the laws of the time, the laws of God. And as he did that, he developed a righteousness that is deserved by him, holiness that is deserved by him. And then when he chooses to lay his life down on the cross, there's this moment, like Martin Luther says, where this great exchange takes place, where the holiness and the righteousness that He deserves comes and lands upon us who don't deserve it. And He took our separation, our pursuing of things that, that just devour itself constantly, this endless cycle that we think will make us rich but actually enslave us, he took that separation from God and put it upon Himself and bore it on the cross. And His love for us meant that the things that we deserve, He took, and the things that we do not deserve, He gave us. Our self-serving and our self-devouring nature, the Bible calls sin, and it, it has no place with the holy God. Wonderfully, because Jesus came and became like us, and He became poor and knew every challenge, every temptation that we face, yet remained holy and righteous and sinless, 
and focused his life and his direction and his everything, his thoughts upon his relationship with God, he was able to bring about this exchange for us. What a beautiful offering for our sin, offering forgiveness, offering grace. And as He does that, He sets us free. He sets us free to fully know and experience His love through this grace, which cost Him everything, but is freely given to us. And as He sets us free, He allows us to know Him in all its, His beauty and fullness. And it kind of leads us into this next question, which was, does becoming a Christian then mean you don't value money or houses or families or nice jobs? And the answer is, of course not. We need these things, and they are God's grace of giving to us. But knowing the love of Jesus and the fact that He has set us free from this unhealthy love and cycle and pursuit of things that devour itself, it means that these houses and jobs and money and resources and family can be things that work with us and for us, and we do not work for them. And that's a big distinction. It's by knowing the grace of giving through God's love in Jesus and embracing this free gift of eternal riches that we have in Him that truly allows us to fully experience grace as a means of giving, uh, sorry, giving as a means of grace to us. Everything we have, all the good things that we enjoy, all of the beautiful things in life now become a blessing to be used because they are a means of gospel grace from God to us, and we can enjoy them to their fullness rather than being used uh, by us, uh, sorry, rather than being used by them, we are able to use those things to extend the joy in life. So Paul knows that the gospel and the love of God through his grace of giving is the only thing when he speaks to the, Mace or to the Corinthians about the Macedonian churches, and it explains how the Macedonians, even though they are in great lack themselves, were able to give far beyond their own means. Reminding the Corinthians of the grace of God's giving is also the only way that he knows they too will excel in this grace of giving. So, says Paul, because you know the grace of giving that comes to you through Jesus Christ, and I'm paraphrasing the, the last part of our reading, you through Jesus Christ, uh, sorry, the, the grace of giving that came to you through Jesus Christ, who became poor and was separated from the Father so that we might become rich and united. And I don't need to command you, says Paul, in this grace of giving. Your love for God will be proved evident in the same way as your faith and your speech and your knowledge has been transformed by God's love for you and His grace of giving towards you, it is only natural that you, like Jesus, will increasingly excel in this grace of giving towards others. Okay, that's Paul's 
kind of summarizing phrase there. So I remember, remember I said that anybody can give, but believers experience the fullness of the grace of giving. I wonder if we see now more why that is. Those who don't know the love of God and the fullness of it, they give out of the abundance of their own riches. So if they have, they give. If they don't have, they don't give. And Christians, wonderfully, who've been transformed by the grace of God's giving toward us, know the love of God. We give out of the abundance of His riches and understand that everything we have, whether much or little, is a gift from God to be used as a means of grace to us and to others. So Foundation Church, dear friends, allow me to commend us into the loving arms of God afresh this afternoon into the person of Jesus. His multiple means of grace are there for us to fill us with faith and to bring a joy in this life as much as we look forward in hope to the next. And may that certain knowledge of His grace through His giving toward you allow that same sense of grace. Remember, it's a certain knowledge that by the the proof that we experience His grace, it'll continue to come and continue to come, that we can allow it to flow out towards others, to bring the grace of giving from God to us, through us, to others. So let's look at the next passage in 2 Corinthians 9 as it speaks about the effects of this grace of giving that flows from us to others. We read in 2 Corinthians 9 from verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will provide thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. And while they long for you and pray for you because of this surpassing grace upon you, thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift. And here, Paul highlights a a few of the benefits of excelling in this grace of giving. In verse 7, there's this sense of the smile of God, the enjoyment of God who loves a cheerful giver because it's a transformed, softened heart that knows the love of God, knows the giving of God. In verse 8, God makes all grace and sufficiency abound in your life so that you can abound in every good work. 
And because we cherish the giver above the gift, we don't want to overemphasize this, right? But I love the promises of God that, that He will provide for us as He has done time and time again. He will continue to provide for us everything we need to be able to excel in this grace of giving in our lives as in the life of the church. In verse 10, God will multiply your seed for sowing and increase your harvest of righteousness. Wonderful. What a promise. Verse 11, that we would be enriched to be generous, which will produce worship to God. Verse 12, fulfilling genuine needs of other believers. What a blessing that is. Excelling in the grace of giving means you are meeting real, on-the-ground, genuine needs. And verse 13 to 15 speaks about the unity in the gospel across churches and people groups that explodes in thanksgiving and worship. Let's read together again verse 13 to 15, just picking out those highlighted words so you can see the sense of cross-pollinization that's happening by the gospel. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift. It's quite striking when you read it like that, isn't it? So let's just double-click on that final point, on unity a little bit. Uh, Paul desires to take this generous gift from the very precious saints in small struggling churches in Macedonia and in uh, Asia Minor and in Greece to this big mega mother church in Jerusalem. And the church in Jerusalem is made up mainly of Jewish converts to Christianity, whilst the vast majority of the Christians outside Jerusalem were probably from non-Jewish backgrounds. And Paul hopes to demonstrate that the unity that comes from the gospel, a gospel that he's preached and seen take root and grow and have great effect in nations far and wide already, he hopes that as he's preached this gospel, that the gifts from these churches to Jerusalem will, will help catalyze a sense of gospel unity between the, the churches outside, the non-Jewish base churches, and the very strong Jewish Christian church in Jerusalem. Remember that the Jews in Jerusalem who become followers of Jesus at this time in history are still living very much like Jews. You know, they circumcise the boys, they go to temple, they sacrifice, they meet with the Jews as well as meeting in the houses as believers. So for them to do life with the pagans those who were previously from pagan nations who had no faith or many faiths, to receive a gift from them. What a humbling, heart-softening moment 
Paul hopes that will be. What a moment of explaining the beauty of the gospel and the power of the gospel. And in our own building project that I spoke about, you know, we've been supported across the board by other churches and, and other movements. They've, they've seen that we need to get over the line, and they, they believe, man, this is better for all of us. This is a sign of the gospel. This is a sign of the power of unity if we can work together and get you across the line because our turn will come at some point, and we'll need you. And some of them have genuinely excelled in this grace of giving. And it has brought such a strength and bond and faith and friendship and joy together. This unity is a beautiful thing that develops. And I'm so grateful for our friendship in advance. And the Apostle Paul believes that because everyone who calls on the name of Jesus by faith and has experienced His grace of giving towards them, are one in Christ, this oneness, this unity is something that he truly finds, I mean, he calls it the manifold wisdom of God, the great mystery hidden and has been now revealed. And he speaks about it time and time again. And Paul believes that the gospel unites people. He, he believes it breaks down walls and divisions between people. We read in Colossians 3, which is again a letter written by Paul, verse 11, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, you can say man, woman, you can say young person, old person, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all, these put on love, which binds everyone together in perfect harmony. Part of Paul's encouragement to excel in the grace in the grace of giving through God's love in Jesus is because He knows that through giving and living generously, we demonstrate a gospel unity and a oneness between all people. And it bubbles over in thanksgiving and in worship for this inexpressible gift. Foundation Church and guests, it's Jesus longs for you to know and experience Him as this inexpressible gift. The Apostle Paul longs for you to know and experience Jesus as this gift. I long for you to know and experience Jesus as this great and inexpressible gift of true and eternal riches. And God is at work in the world right now, excelling in this grace of giving. He's setting people free from the slavery to these cycles of earthly riches so that we might know the inexpressible gift of eternal life, the thing that does go into eternity with us. And in His wisdom and kindness, God invites us 
to participate. He invites us to co-labor with Him in this work, to preach it and to live it. Live out the gospel. And one of the huge implications and ways that we do that is to join in this excelling in the grace of giving. Excelling in this grace means to live generously before God. So see how far you can stretch yourself in this generosity. Stretch yourself to generosity in every area of your life. Allow the beautiful benefits of excelling in the grace of giving to excite you and to embolden you and to impassion you. The question often asked is, hey, how little can I get away with giving? When really the question should be, how much can I get away with giving? I think foremost, we give generously to God through His church. What a privilege to be able to partner with Him in the work that your wonderful elders and leaders do in this church, the work that you do, and the exciting future and dreams and hopes that God has and the certain knowledge that He has that Foundation Church is going to be part of in the future. That's what we give first and foremost to. How much do we give? Well, how much can we get away with giving? We live generously among our community and our friends and our family. Where there's need, I step in. Where is an opportunity to bless, we take it. How much do we give? Well, how much can I get away with giving? We live generously before our unbelieving friends and family and the explorers of the faith. Those who we long for to experience the grace and excellence of giving. The excellence of God's giving and the gospel towards them. Again, how much do we give? As much as I can get away with in every area of my life. Giving draws all men, women, children, married, single, people from every part of the world, from every culture and language. I mean, my accent gives it away, doesn't it? I'm from somewhere far away. And He draws people like us together into this big story, His, His big story of setting people free and giving eternal life with Him to the praise of His glory. Foundation Church, may our story at God first, may it encourage you. May it put faith in you for your own story, your part of God's story, in your beautiful church as well. Excel in this grace of giving, and you can trust God. You can trust God that His ways are far superior. He's not going to take things that you, He knows you need. He will give everything he will provide at every step. And His ways, because they are better, means that there's greater joy, there's more freedom, and the things that we then pursue, we use for Him, for His glory, for His story. We use to bring life and joy and blessing to us rather than it eating us up alive, being caught in 
the same cycle. And we can trust God to use our earthly resources because much or little, we declare the gospel message as we excel in the grace of giving with whatever we have. And we trust God that on both this side of eternity and on the next, we long to experience and enjoy His presence, and we know we will. And we long for our friends and our family and those that are part of His story to know the grace of God's giving in us, through us. And we know that as we do that, it bubbles up with thanksgiving and worship as we see the eternal impact of this exceedingly wonderful grace of God's giving toward us in Christ Jesus. I'm so excited that we're going to be able to do communion together and break bread and drink. What a bet is there a better way to express the unity and beauty of the gospel and the the excellence of the grace of Jesus' giving toward us. So let's just pray and then we'll do that together. Oh Father. We thank you that we are the unworthy recipients. Nothing in us has somehow earned your favor. Nothing in us has impressed you. But because of the love that you have for us, we have received. We have received blessing upon blessing. We have received grace upon grace. You have given and you have given. And you have given again. And here we stand in your grace. Here we stand having an appreciation that bubbles up, a thanksgiving that bubbles up because of the great love that you have for us and the excellence of your giving toward us, the grace that is so abundant in our lives. God, thank you that you transform the earthly things that we, we know and we love and we pursue sometimes too, in, in too great a way. We make them too big. We make them too large in our lives. You transform those things that would eat us up and that would enslave us and you allow us as we are able to set them down at your feet uh, to use them for your glory, to use them for your good, to use them for the good of others, and to use them for our joy as you would have us do, that they would be a blessing to us, and that we might use them to be a blessing to others. Father, as we eat and we drink now, would you continue to give, a, give to us? We want to come and receive from you. We come, we eat your body, we drink your blood, we, we, we think of all the incredible blessings we have in Christ Jesus. We thank you that we eat them together and that it builds unity for us, unites us together, man, woman, child, different parts of the world, different languages, different cultures, but one thing we have in common, Christ Jesus, our Lord. Continue to build this in us as faith stirs, as as thankfulness and appreciation keep growing in our hearts and it keeps us soft for you, O Lord. 
to know you and to love you afresh every day and all your blessings and benefits. For your name's sake we pray. Amen.